Next Chapter Podcast. I dig a pygmy by Charles Hawtrey and the Deaf Aids. Phase one in which Doris gets her oats. Ringo, hit me with the bass drum. To a first riding nowhere, someone's being that this is our first Beatles record, you gotta start it right from the beginning. No funny business. I was gonna play the one after 909, and I was like, nah, man, you gotta play two of us because oh, well, you'll find out if you don't know. But this song isn't about what you think it's about. They gave you the old Wang Zuki Supreme. The song is Two of Us. It's by arguably one of the greatest bands of all time, if not the, The Beatles. It's from their 1970 final studio record, Let It Be. It's also number 392 out of 500 on the 500 with at Josh Adam Myers. That's my handle on all social media, y'all. What's up, everybody? Fleece Army, how are you doing? I'm in Maryland. Yeah, guys, oh, I'll be in Royers Ford, Pennsylvania this Friday at Soul Joel's Comedy Club. I will be headlining. I want to see everybody there. It's it's going to be so much fun. It's outdoors. It's COVID safe. So if you are in the Philadelphia, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Baltimore, D.C., New Jersey area, December 4th, Soul Joel's Comedy Club and Lounge. Get your tickets at my website, joshadammyers.com. All right. This is, a, this is a meaty intro because it's our first Beatles record. And I mean, there is so much to talk about because I don't know if everybody knows the real history behind this record right here. Arguably in one of my favorite bands, I have the Beatles Apple tattooed to my arm, released on May 8th of 1970 on Apple Records and produced by Phil Spector. This is the 12th and final studio album from the Liverpool England rock pop group and literally the most influential band of all time, the Beatles. By 66, after playing together for about five years and most of it touring nonstop in between records and movies, the Beatles had quit playing live and essentially became a studio band. Then after Brian Epstein died in 1967, they went a couple of years without anyone but themselves or George Martin being in control, which led to conflict between members of the band. And after the stressful recording of the White Album in 68, they were over their heads and fraying apart. At the beginning of 1969, John Lennon proposed that Rolling Stones manager Alan Klein take over the complicated affairs of the Beatles' career and Apple Records. Little side note, John Lennon had already hired Klein as his personal manager. In response, Paul unsuccessfully pushed for them to use his soon-to-be father-in-law. However, the other Beatles outnumbered him and, and Klein was chosen, although... Skeptical and resentful Paul never actually signed the contract. Paul then proposed that they return to playing live to recapture all that Beatles magic. The rest of the band didn't want to go back on the road, so he had to convince them to allow cameras to fill them rehearsing and recording a new record for a television documentary to accompany a live concert broadcast in front of an audience at a venue that they would decide on when the time was right. 
The filmmakers were told to start recording every day, and then the Beatles showed up, and they would shoot everything like a fly on the wall until the last Beatle left. Paul's plan was for them to bond as a band again, and they would write, and they would develop songs that maybe could be played live at this upcoming concert without all the studio bullshit of the previous few years. Now, George Martin would technically be producing the recording of the live show, but as the rehearsals were only recorded by the film and sound crew, engineer Glenn Johns was there the whole time with Martin popping in each day for a bit. And with the cold setting of Twinkenham and the long hours and the constant filming and the uncompromising schedule, what was often captured instead was a band under a microscope, butting heads over musical directions and drifting apart so, so slowly. Now, George had just spent some time in upstate New York playing and hanging out with the likes of Bob Dylan and the band, and his songs on the White Album were so highly praised that he went into the project with hopes of finally being more of an equal with Paul and John. But early on, his songs were being put aside again, and Paul would often revert back to telling George what to play. And adding to the tension was John having Yoko constantly by his side in the studio. They were also both addicted to heroin. So besides John not being motivated enough to bring any new material to the sessions, he also acted erratically, he was fighting, often with George. In fact, during the rehearsal portion, George got so fed up that he walked out with the intention of quitting the Beatles. Lennon half-jokingly proposed that if George didn't return in a few days, he would be replaced by his friend Eric Clapton. Dude, what a dick. After leaving, Harrison went to a Ray Charles concert where their old friend, American keyboardist and singer-songwriter Billy Preston was playing organ. George told the band he agreed to return only if they ditched the concert concept and just recorded the songs in the brand new Apple Records studio. He also invited Billy to come sit in with them hoping his professional musicianship and congenial personality would soothe their conflicts. The band agreed and George returned with Billy who would play organ and electric piano. George also signed Billy to Apple Records where he would produce his first couple albums around their schedule. Now, what they didn't know at the time was that they were working on songs that would eventually be used in John, Paul, George, all of their post Beatles solo albums, as well as shit on Abbey Road. With the pressure to play the concert removed, the sessions with Billy loosened up, and in the renewed spirit of those good vibes, they even decided to be filmed playing an impromptu live set on the rooftop of the Apple Corpse building. They played nine takes of five songs, and after 42 minutes, they were shut down by the police. It would be the last time the Beatles ever played live together. The filmmakers left to edit all the footage they had, and Paul's experiment had concluded less than successfully with only one single release so far for the song Get Back. However, only three weeks later, the Beatles, including Billy Preston, reconvened with George Martin to record what would become their 11th studio album, Abbey Road. Unlike the shambles of the Let It Be sessions, Martin's strict conditions were that it would be as disciplined and open to experimentation as the earlier studio collaborations. 
Lennon would quietly quit six days before Abbey Road's release in the fall of 69, leaving the remaining Beatles to finish some work on their previous Get Back sessions with George Martin for the movie's soundtrack at Alan Klein's insistence. The band's breakup seemed inevitable, but still wasn't formally announced due to business entanglements. By the end of that year, Paul was confused, brokenhearted, and depressed at John's leaving and fearful for his future. So he disappeared for several months to his farm in Scotland with his family to nurse sort of a nervous breakdown while also secretly recording his first solo record. With Paul finally giving up what was essentially his project and the remaining Beatles uninterested in revisiting the unpleasant experience, they let the engineer mix and assemble the Get Back album soundtrack from the studio recordings and the live rooftop performance. But after a couple test pressings over a year, the band were still unhappy with the results, so John decided to give the whole mess to the talented but notoriously controlling American producer Phil Spector, with whom he had recently recorded. Working independently, Spectre overhauled many of the songs, occasionally adding his own orchestrations and choirs, and chopped together some of the banter and outtakes to make it appear live and more fun. As Lennon later said, Phil was given the shittiest load of badly recorded shit with a lousy feeling to it, and he made something of it. Dude, that's fucking... I love John. Still in the band's state, the title track Get Back seemed inappropriately optimistic, so it was decided that the album would instead be named after the more resigned song, Let It Be. In the interim, Glenn John's version of Get Back got bootleg and became widely available, including immediately being played on American radio. The George Martin-produced single of Let It Be came out and was another number one in anticipation of the record and movie. The other three Beatles thought Phil Spector did a great job with what he was given, but when Paul heard Spector's overwrought production work on what was intended to be a stripped-down album, he retaliated by intentionally putting out his first solo album a month earlier in conflict with the scheduled release of the Let It Be album. Ooh! Fuck yeah, Paul. He also gave ambiguous interviews that seemed to express the end of the group. By the time the album was released concurrently with theatrical film, the Beatles had already officially broken up for a month. Like most Beatles albums, still went to number one almost all over the world and had the most initial sales of any record at that time with 3.7 million advanced copies. The band even won an Oscar for Best Original Song Score and a Grammy for Best Original Score. Dude, they they fall up. The Beatles fall up. Dude, Peter Jackson is, is re-editing the whole Let It Be session and he's going to be coming out next year with a remastered version of the record. It's like, we can't get enough. The Beatles are the greatest. And my guest today is a huge fan. The one and only Joel McHale. You know Joel as being one of the hosts of The Soup, starring as Jeff Winger on NBC's Community. He currently hosts Card Sharks on ABC. And you can see him soon in the upcoming thriller comedy, Happily. I'm a huge fan of Joel's, so this was a pleasure. It's always cool when you can connect with somebody over a band that you fucking love. And I bleed the Beatles. He does too. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on any platform. If you're listening on Apple, leave us a five-star rating and go ahead and leave us a review. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. 
Follow the Facebook group, The 500 Podcast with Josh Adam Myers. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Paul, you want to take this? Oh, sure. Well, there's nothing left to say, but oh, here we go. With number 392 out of 500, but let it be. For the greatest band in the history of the world, The Beatles. Okay, so so being that this is our first Beatles record and we wanted you on for a while and it just worked out perfectly, um, you know, tell me your history with the Beatles. The first time you heard them, take me there. I don't remember. Go ahead. Next question. <laughs> uh, let's see. The first time I heard the Beatles. Well, I'm an, I'm an old man. I've just turned 49. Thank you. Thanks for the wishes, guys. It was last less than yeah. a week ago. <laughs> anyway. Wait, wait, wait. I'm November 14th. November 20th for me, my friend. Oh, Sag or Scorp? Don't know and don't care. No, everyone asked me that. And then uh, they're like, I swear to you, in high school, I was at a party and this girl goes, she brought this thing up. She goes, well, what, you know, what's your astrological sign? I'm like, guess. And uh, she guessed everyone except for Scorpio. And she thought I was fucking with her. And I was like, no, you still haven't said mine. And she goes, I've said them all. I've said all 12 or however there there are. And I was like, no, you haven't. And then she goes, but what are you? And I was like, Scorpio. And then she goes, totally. And I was like, you know what? You know what? And I, I, I look, I understand if it helps people and they're fans of it. And I, when I look at the list of like characteristics, I'm like, well, yeah, that's me. I, maybe I'm a Pisces on a good day or a, a cancer on a bad day. Who knows? But I'm just like, it's just like, I just, it just, it was like, Oh wait, the person was born at 6 53 AM on a Thursday in September. Oh, well that <laughs> your life is determined. I just don't, I know that right now people who love astrology are, they hate you. Off, they hate you. I got to plant the flag somewhere, folks. Yeah. They're like, Ringo was a Pisces. Uh, and that meant he, and so. <laughs> Whatever that means. I like that. Like, and that's why he got the job over Pete Best. And I was like, or maybe he was a better drummer. He was a better drummer. And, Pete so, and better songwriter. So uh, sure. let's see. I don't. I can't tell you when I first heard the Beatles because my parents listened to the Beatles. So a lot like Luciano Pavarotti and uh, a couple of other singers that my parents listened to, like John Denver, and they listened, my dad listened to a ton of opera and to a French singer named Nina. And so there are these weird things, and Elton John, like they, they, so... There are these songs in my brain that have become, I can only like, they're like folk song or like the songs of my tribe where you just grew up. Like I I can, I will be able to tell you the lyrics to, I don't know, well, you know, let it be or um, two of us or something like that. Just like I could tell you ring around the rosy or uh, I don't know, the pledge of allegiance. And so I can't, I do know that my, so I, I was born in Rome. Thank you. You guys know that, though, because you were on my Wikipedia. For sure. Uh, but my dad had an original pressing of Abbey Road, and he also cut out this uh, picture of the Beatles for some reason, and it was in Italian, the little the little blurb, and the, he just pasted it to the back of the album, and my brother has that to this day. Uh, and then my aunt was a teenager in the 60s, and she moved from Vancouver, B.C., where my mom's family uh, lived, to Rome, 
And uh, she saw the Beatles numerous times and met them backstage because she was like this big, big. I'm saying she's big because she is 5'11". <laughs> she is a 5'11", blonde-haired American girl. She's a power forward for the Seattle Sparks. <laughs> yeah, basically. And uh, she kind of like when in the 60s, there wasn't a lot of just blonde teenagers all, you know, living in Rome with their parents. And so she was able to get backstage and she met all of them. And she has, uh, she has given me and my brothers, uh, some of the 45s that she had and uh, which I still have right now, which I'm like, do I frame them? What do I do with them? I'm scared. And so, but, uh, when I really got into the Beatles, I can tell you like seventh grade was the summer of Pink Floyd, the wall. And, um, that was like a thing. And then, but in that was seventh grade, but like in fifth grade, my friend Nick DeLeo, Dominic DeLeo, he was a big Beatles fan. And we, and I feel like my love affair with the Beatles went, I feel like we did what teenagers did, which is you start out with please, please me or love me do or something. And by the end of high school, you know, it was like, are we going to listen to, uh, what was the shaved fish or something, whatever Lennon's crazy singles that were coming out. But that said, so I'm trying to, you know, you, you, I'm trying to think of like, like albums that I wore out to their very end. I think this, I am, and I know this is such a common thing to say, but like the second side of Abbey Road is just this. It's the greatest thing ever. Absolutely. It's amazing. And then like, you know, like with, you know, like on Revolver with Tomorrow Never Knows, that song could have been released 20 years later, 30 years later. And obviously Phil Collins version, I thought was, outstanding that was on the album tonight 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 so it was a genesis album or was it on boy i'm getting this all wrong um dude you're blowing my mind that phil collins did tomorrow never knows i'm like what oh and it's it's great it's really good uh anyway so i i didn't have i don't have the moment where i went and then beatles for sale dropped into my lap and that was i, I do remember going to cellophane square in Bellevue Square, uh, Cellophane Square is a store, was a store, in Bellevue Square, which is w- one of the biggest malls. Well, it's not one of the biggest. It's super successful. But we would go in there all the time. And I remember the Beatles, uh, I guess it was here, there, here, there, and everywhere. No, uh, with, uh, with the babies, the dead babies and the steak cover, right? And they were selling it for $200. And they had three of them. And I was like, $200? Who do you think I am? Richie Rich? What am I? Bill Gates can just walk around just spending $200? And, you know, then I found out that Garth Brooks bought them all because they're valuable and rare, obviously, and I kick myself all the time. Um, And I saw Paul McCartney play for the Flowers in the Dirt tour, uh, where he had the updated version of Love Me Do, which it's fine. Uh, so uh, I do remember that when he played Live and Let Die, when the cannons went off, my friend Jason Burns's contact flew out of his eye because of the, <laughs> the concussion. Because it was in the kingdom, which is uh, a, you know, like a dome. It's a, it was a cement room, uh, the kingdom, which is now no longer there. And I was there the day they blew it up. Um, Oh, wow. Anyway, so I don't have that. I don't have that specific moment, but I will say I, you know, I spent so much of my life going, the Beatles are my favorite band. The Beatles are my favorite band. And um, because, you know, you hear it all the time because, you know, they, they 
they changed everything. And, and, and then people go like, yeah, but what about the Rolling Stones? I'm like, I, at no point did I say, <laughs> I guess. The it, Rolling I, Stones weren't good. Yeah. It's, yeah but yeah. there's something about the Beatles that, that it's like, there, the, all the music that came after the Beatles is influenced by the Beatles. Yeah. So even even if you don't like, I, I'm a huge Beatles fan. I have the Beatles Apple for Apple Studios tattooed to my arm. I remember, like, and that's the only tattoo you have. That's that. And, and but <laughs> granted, okay, you're like, I got that Apple tattoo on my arm. I was like, you also probably have a grocery list or there somewhere, like on an ankle <laughs> yeah. or something. You're like, fuck it, I'm just gonna put it on my ankle right here, baby. Hundred percent, hundred percent. But there's something about the Beatles that transcends music. It's like everything about them was that they started with "Love, Love Me Do" and then they finished with "Abbey Road" and and Her Majesty. It's just they kept changing. And yeah. so, and I don't think, yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I, and, and I, and you know, this, I mean, they, the, how quickly it all happened. The span of time is so short that they went from love me do to uh, the second side of Abbey road. It's so short. And there's that famous thing where when they first started taping with George Martin, they taped 11 songs in one day. That's yeah. they taped an album in one day. And a masterpiece in one day, and there, yeah, the 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 light speed that they were, and 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 for for you know uh, mostly white people, uh, they're the the basically the invention of counterculture was something that they did. Obviously, there were a lot of other forces at work. But I'll eat, like even even back then, my dad and his friends would be like, "Oh, when we saw those haircuts, man, it was it was like aliens had landed. <laughs> Nobody had that. That that was a whole new thing." Anyway, I interrupted you. No, no. And then two weeks later, they were hippies, which is so great. That's which what, is so, yeah. It's like that. I mean, like- the only thing I can liken it to is this is not a good comparison, but like you come, you get, you're a freshman in high school, and you're 98 pounds. And you, ju- I don't know, you just came out of Catholic school yeah. or you were raised Mormon or you were raised very, cons- and by senior year, I don't know what to compare. Like you're LeVar, you're LeVar Arrington, you're 300 pounds. You, yeah. You look like Robert Smith from the cure or something, or, or you're a 300 pound middle linebacker uh, who's got a teardrop tattoo. So that, that is how the how dramatic that the change was and which is incredible which is incredible for a band to be able to do that in six years but let's focus on on let it be because now because now i know you're no i don't want to i've decided i don't want to talk about that to because that's the record that's on the dude but i want to talk about peppermint alarm clock okay is that the the incense peppermints ripples in time yes nice dude i love Uh, that song so that's a good song so being that you know the whole Beatles catalog and you know the history of the Beatles, which this does is Neil deGrasse Tyson know this about the much about the albums that he's- dude he knows everything and where it's placed not just in the 500 greatest albums list but where it's placed in the constellations of the universe. So okay, I'm not going to be as you're good. You're not going to be gonna, as good. I'm just going to make shit up. That's what oh, I'm going to do. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. 
My name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. So, but let's talk about, let's talk about this record because from what we know about this record is this is almost the sound of the Beatles breaking up. Yep. Because of the history about it, they wanted to, they wanted to, Paul wanted to go back out on the road. None none of the Beatles wanted to do that. So George hated them at that point, right? They hated He was like, I'm out. And he would just leave. For sure. But, but this is their attempt at doing a, almost like a concert video. That's what they kind of agreed upon. And we, we got those notes coming up later, but this is what's funny is that I love the Beatles so much. I always looked at this record as great. And now having read all the information and really did a deep dive on the other albums to prep for this, it's like you can almost hear that this, this is a Beatles record, but it's almost not. So tell me your thoughts on Let It Be. I mean, it's still, I, when you look at, I, okay, it is obviously it's a Beatles record, right? Uh is it not? You just think it's a collection of songs that they were like, well, this is what we got. I, I mean, think, I think this is all Paul. That's what I think. This is a Paul McCartney uh, record. I think, yeah, you can tell because you let you listen to that Let It Be Naked thing. Yeah. Uh, which came out what, in 2009 or something where you just it's just it's not that interesting. But I'm just like, oh, these are just mic tests that they're doing. But you can hear Paul be like, you know, if they want to do it, they can do it. If they don't want to come with us, that's fine. I'm like, oh, man, that guy is trying to keep John and George from murdering each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you hear Ringo going like, uh, I, 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 can I just play? Can, I'd like to play a song. Can we just play a little song? I'd like to play. Um but but th- didn't this happen with what it wasn't like between like they were like, well, Abbey Road, they recorded a bunch of that stuff like around the same time and as the White Album. And like it, it's it, correct me. You correct me because I'm not sure. It seemed like they were producing all this stuff and they were like, well, I don't know, except for maybe the second half. of Because remember how like with with Abbey Road, John was like, I just want it to be some simple, fun, good rock songs. Yeah. And, and Paul and Paul's like, I'm writing a symphony. So yeah. uh, 
So you tell me. So from my understanding um, is the Beatles went to make this and they were they were also working on Abbey Road as well. Um, then this kind of fell apart. And then before they broke up, they were like, let's get one more studio record with George Martin. And that's how you got Abbey Road. Uh, this was released afterwards because they were going to kind of like throw it away. They were like, they weren't even going to use it. And they were like, ah, but, but they, I think that's why they gave it to Phil Spector. Phil Spector then took it, turned it into this, which isn't a bad record because there are right. some great songs on it that are iconic in the Beatles library, but and I he mean, didn't, and during it, he didn't murder anyone. So that's a real, didn't, murder, didn't murder anybody, but, but aren't we kind of, but aren't we kind of glad that he did like Phil Spector, the legend no, of him. I'm not glad. No, okay. I'm not, All right. <laughs> Did you ever used to watch the uh, Conan bit that he would do? Is point counterpoint. Yeah. Did you ever watch that I, bit I, I, he would do with it? He and Andy would do it called point counterpoint, and then they would be like, "All right, do you want to pick point or counterpoint?" Uh, and they'd be like, "I'll pick counterpoint," and Conan would always take point. And they're like, "All right, what's the topic?" And they're like, "Murder." <laughs> and then they're like, "You go first, Andy," and Andy would like do this really big, like he was like. How am I supposed to defend murder? And then he would go into like this five minute build up to why murder might be okay of certain people. And at the end, Conan would be like, "You're a horrible person. Murder's awful." And so anyway, uh, yeah, but we don't get that. We don't get the we don't get the the uh, the film with uh, Al Pacino as Phil Spector. So that's and I kind of like that. You know Mike- what? The murder's worth it. The murder is worth it. Oh uh, yeah, we didn't get you know Saving Private Ryan. Amazing movie. You know, wouldn't have happened without World War Two. Needed Hitler. Uh, a lot of good so, movies. Wait, so what we oh so so you I I interrupted your explanation. So there was so it was a being made around the same time, not as the White Album. So so the, so basically, just to sum it up, is uh like Paul wanted to go back on tour, the rest of the band didn't. So they were like, well, let's do it. He got him to say, let's do a concert video, and then they decided to do this. They started filming, and basically. Uh, this, like I said, is the the disintegration of the Beatles. So they were going to break up, but then Paul convinced them to do one more studio album, which is Abbey Road. And then this was brought out and released after Phil Spector saved it. And then this is what we get. And then years later, you know, Paul comes out and says how much he hates it. He does let it be naked. So this is a Beatles record. Yeah. You know, it, but it's not George. It's not George Martin the way that the Beatles had recorded everything else in the past. So knowing that, you know, all those other Beatles records and now have listened to this now, like, tell me your thoughts on this record. Well, I like this record so much because it came, I was born in 1971 and there's this weird part of me. It was like the Beatles did everything. They did it all. And I wasn't even born. And I, it just all happened. And all these people I know, all these older people are like, oh, yeah, we went to that show. We we did this. We loved that. And uh, and so there's a side of me that was like and then I always got confused by Hey Jude because I was because I could buy the album in the store. But then it was like, yeah, that never came out as an album. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, what's happened? That's why when I go over like, if you look at the way Beatles albums were released or Beatles music was released, it's bananas where Capitol Records were just like, we need four more songs in the next two months. And they just kept shelling the American countryside with album after album. And I, w- and I was like, wait, when was that? And then you're like, oh, no, that was this collection of songs that wound up over here. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Anyway, um, let it be, I enjoy uh, tremendously uh, 
And my experience with it is later, much like, you know, came out later, I grew to love it because, because everyone knew Let It Be. And, uh, and then I was got confused by Let It Be because they had, there was a two different, ver- there was versions with a certain guitar, like the guitar solos were different on different versions. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, for sure. And I suppose that's the Phil Spector of it all. And, and I know that then Paul went, Paul went back in and did some of that. Yeah, I have no idea. You know, oh, you're, than no, me. you're you're spot on. You're spot on right now. You're you're 100 percent because basically, let it be naked is I'm um, I think it's with George Martin, but Paul basically removed the wall of sound that Phil Spector added. So Paul hated a lot of the stuff. Like he hated the sappy strings that are in Long and Winding Road. He hated uh, the order of the songs. I hate those too. <laughs> And yet The Long and Winding Road was a gigantic hit. It's one of my favorite songs on this record, you know? Like, this is the thing, is if you look at the track listing of Let It Be Naked and you look at the track listing of this, it's like that had uh, Don't Let Me Down on it. Um, It opens with Get Back. It's a masterpiece. And I'm not saying this is a bad record at all. Because, dude, I mean, even, like, look here. Let's just dive right into it, and then we'll get into the tracks. Because, like, it opens with arguably my favorite Beatles song of all time. Also with one of the most iconic Beatles intros ever. Uh, So, Peter, play it for a second. I Dig a Pygmy by Charles Hawtrey and the Deaf Aids. Phase one in which Doris gets her oats. So if anybody is wondering what that means, Pygmy is a generic term for ethnic groups that have an extremely short average height, although classically it refers to the Pygmies of Western Congo. And Charles Hawtrey was an old hat comedic actor in the 60s. Uh, Deaf AIDS is British English for hearing aids. And getting one's oats means for a female person to have sex. Lennon is thus humorously introducing the song as if it were a movie by Charles Hawtrey, an unlikely Deaf AIDS called... I dig a pig. Yeah, and he was so fucking high. <laughs> oh, high as Bobby. I mean, they were, they were, they had to peel them off the ceilings. This is, and this, so, is her- this is heroin Lennon, by the way. This yeah, is this, this is like him and Yoko are just booting that black tar. So this was originally titled We're On Our Way Home and rehearsed in a rocking electric style before Paul got what he wanted. The bass part is actually played by George Harrison on a Fender Telecaster guitar. Now, although Paul says he wrote this about his then new relationship with Linda Eastman, others have suspected it might refer to his relationship with John. That's what I've always hoped uh, because it just feels like knowing that this is the last record the Beatles put out, that this was kind of like a love song between Paul and John. Yeah. And it's a, you like, yeah, you and I have memories uh, that are longer than you know, the, the road ahead of that, whatever that lyric yeah, yeah, yeah. That I just destroyed. I mean, it was, it was all right. uh, <laughs> That's what a Pisces terrible, would say. <laughs> uh, you and I have memories longer than the road that uh, stretches out <laughs> ahead. And uh, I guess the road stretches out ahead. So I always just saw this as such a, like it starts the album and it's such a warm yeah. love song. It's yeah. so, uh, it's like a, like a nice bowl of oatmeal with honey and cream and, uh, I love this song and it's such a sweet, simple song. And you're thinking, 
this is a Beatles album. This is it. And you're like, and at the end of the first song, you're like, oh, wow, this is such a nice thing. And I, it's, there must've been, if it's about the breakup, then it's Paul very, you know, just warmly remembering John. And, uh, but if it's about Linda, then yeah, I mean, it could very well be about her. I, I honestly got Because I, he was with her for what, 30 years or something? Yeah, so. for a long time. I, you know what? It's funny. I, I definitely think this is about Linda. Uh, Cause like we said, Paul wrote the majority of the songs on this record, but as a Beatles fan, even just like the reaction that you got, it's like, there's something about us hoping that this is about those two iconic figures that just so happen to meet each other in this fucking weird thing that is life and then create so much beautiful music for us. I mean, I like I, you couldn't have said it better. This is, this is matzo ball soup. It's, it's, it's Thanksgiving dinner. It's just comfort food. And it just reminds me of every reason that I love the Beatles and, right. and like, and, little- and much like, like Thanksgiving, you have to have all that other food to cover the bland, dry taste of turkey. So you're just surrounding it. So that's the turkey is the tumultuous relationship he has with John and then the mashed potatoes and the cranberry and the gravy and the peas or whatever you're having, the roasted Brussels sprout. No, but yes, yeah, sorry, I interrupted. Oh, keep going, dude. No, 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 I'm starving. No, and I love, you know, Amy Mann does a, such a wonderful version of this song with her uh, lovely husband, Michael Penn. I don't know if you've ever heard it. it was Love both the, of them. Love both of them. It was on the Magnolia soundtrack. Ooh, I, she does Save uh, Me. I know Save Me because I, I learned that on guitar. But It's, it's going to have to be. It's not the Magnolia soundtrack. It's on a, you know what? It's not. It's not. It's not. Uh, but it's a really good version. And I think, I think for my money, uh, it's the best version since, Easily since the oh, since it no, came dude, out, it's on the it's on the I am Sam soundtrack. It's yeah, on, it's on yeah. the I am Sam. Yeah, 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 yeah for yeah. sure. It's great. Good memory. Thank you, Magnolia. Yeah, she did save me, and she did a cover of one. Uh, yeah, but by Three Dog Night. Uh, yeah, so but I Michael Penn, that uh, no myth, and th- that whole era. Just, I can't recommend Michael Penn music enough, and of course Amy Mann from was a revelation when till Tuesday came on the air and, uh, and, and did voices carry, which then as a kid, when I'm like fourth grader, I'm like, Oh, this is about a boyfriend who's beating up his girlfriend. That's <laughs> terrible. Uh, but anyway, I, I've met them a couple of times and that I'm, I can't, I literally, it was like, I couldn't talk. I was like, okay, well, I'll just, I'll just show myself out. And okay. uh, anyway, so going back to, we're still talking about two, two of, of us, us which, yeah. I that it is one of those Beatles songs that I will never turn off, and uh, it's just it is one of those ones. You you we all have those, yeah. Uh, but I think if I have to hear Rocky Raccoon one more time, I'm gonna drill a hole in my head. But uh, sorry, it's a wonderful song. I just it's it's a it's it's a masterpiece, and I that song was played. I went to CYO camp for like ten years of my childhood, and they played that song, and everyone looked forward to it, and I did. What I couldn't stand later on, I would listen to, listen to Breakfast with the Beatles on KZOK on one hundred two point five in Seattle, and there I was like that. I got to know the DJ, and they're like, "Yep, we get Rocky Raccoon requests." And he goes, "I could play that just over and over," and he'd play it almost every week, and I'd be like, "Okay, yep, we know." Okay, anyway. <laughs> All right. What, all right. So let's be. So let's ask this because we're talking about favorite and worst. What's your favorite Beatles song ever? Uh, I think that is a difficult question to answer 
but in uh, on Abbey Road, uh, uh, when it comes, when the theme from "You Never Give Me Your Money" comes back, uh, that that is probably one of the most dramatic. I mean, it's like one of those like here it comes, and uh, it is just it 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 uh, it changes my life every time I hear it and i like like a symphony i I love listening to it all the way through but if i'm in a rush i'll just go right and i'll just be like here it comes and it's all reincorporated and it's all together and it it is it is a heart slaying thing but it's hard to say what you uh i mean i'm a loser is one of my favorite songs uh day in the life is uh just i you know that is a a masterpiece of so much that they did uh, is, and yeah. And I think what's so cool, and I, I bet it's the same experience that I have, is that since I've been a Beatles fan, I, I really got hugely into Beatles around 13, 14. And at that time, it was like, oh, well, my favorite song is Sgt. Pepper. And then I got into my senior year of high school, and then I was like, dude, it's happiness is a warm gun. And then I got a little bit older, and it was it just keeps changing, I think. And yeah. that's what's so great about this band, is that you start one place just just like them. And then by the end of it, you know, you're, you got sideburns, you're on heroin. It's great. All right. Yeah. Moving that's on. That's exactly it. Moving on. Cause that was a loaded Moving question. On. That was a loaded question. That was my bad. All right. Right. Well, you know, but you know, yeah, there's a lot of, never, people don't talk about, you know, like shitty Beatles songs that no one listens to. So maybe you should do a whole thing about that. I even fuck with Octopus's garden, bro. Just to give wow. you an idea. All of it. All of it, bro. All right. Do you think Revolution 9 should be on the White Album? <sighs> Dude, I find something good about that. You ever you ever listen to that and taken mushrooms, man? No, look, if you have to, <laughs> if, it, if you need an assist, then it's, you could do that with almost anything. You'd be For like, sure. yeah, I let my um, uh, smoke alarm chirp every <laughs> one minute, but dude... <laughs> When you get on Molly and listen to that for three and a half hours. Dude, I love that. Oh, I'm so man. Fun laughing about the smoke alarm. Dude, no, dude, no bullshit. So we got ready to do, we got ready to do Wings Band on the Run with Reggie Watts a few months ago. And this is like the height of the pandemic. And I, what's been keeping me sane has been microdosing mushrooms. So I was like, dude, I want to, I want to learn. Those are properly prescribed by your doctor. And, uh, 100%, dude. They connect the synapses oh, right. that get cut off through years. No, your doctor's older. like, take this, take this mushroom. <laughs> each day or you're like i will self-administer and determine the dose yeah but but i listened to every paul mccartney Beatles song from their first record all the way up to the end it took about five and a half hours and it's just hearing that evolution you're like oh my god it's just it just keeps getting like as they grow and as and it just took me back to all of these memories and like i said this is what what we keep getting excited about is that this is why this band is so important. Sorry. So, so moving on. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So dig a pony uh, recorded during their final live performance on the Apple records rooftop. This cryptic Lennon love song to Yoko was later dismissed by him as a Dylan influenced piece of garbage. Uh, It was, (laughs) I know this is great. It was grafted together from two separate song ideas uh, he had, and the words are this just... This guy played this song on the roof, they worked on it, and then went back to go, yeah, it's just garbage. 
well, that I put on you. John is quoted in 1972 saying, I was just having fun with the words. It was literally a nonsense song. You just take words and you stick them together and you see if they have any meaning. Some of them do and some of them he just, don't. He's just angry. Look, it may not have meaning, but it's just like, I just, come on. It's like, we're like, no, just, you know, it just somehow flopped onto the piece of vinyl. I, I don't know how it happened. I I'm like, just, just like, I don't know. I just broke into the recording studio and just someone accidentally pushed record. I was just saying shit out loud and it just wound up on the album. That's when I was like, it's like that whole, like a brilliant Rosie O'Donnell uh, stand-up bit where Sharon Stone was told that she was tricked into uncrossing her legs and crossing them in, in uh, what was that movie? Uh, you know, the famous movie. What is it? Rosie is O'Donnell? It? No, no. The oh, Sharon oh, Stone. Oh, oh, yeah. Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct, where she was like, I was tricked. I was, that was just during. And then Rosie O'Donnell was like, you have to light that shit. No, there's lighting guys. There was a light meter. There was in makeup artists there. That did not just happen. And just like, so anyway, when I hear that, I was like, I, bet the, I was like, well, oh, John's pissed at somebody who was trying, who he, he had like too, too many questions about the meaning of that song. And so he was just like, yeah, doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It's just, you know, like sometimes I'm just like, and then that's a song. And then that's what it is. Yeah. I because. Guarantee. Because it hurts. It hurts us as fans that try to connect with it because we are always looking for deeper meaning in the lyrics. I don't know if you've ever seen John Lennon Imagine, the documentary. There's that scene where there's like a homeless guy that's been camping in John Lennon's like estate yard. And that, right. I, did you? I, and then the guy goes up to me. He's like, well, you wrote all these songs about me, which, of course, is batshit crazy. And John's like, nah, man, I'm just putting words together dude i have no idea who you are it's either about yoko or it's about me and but like but yeah and then he was like come on in for some breakfast and i'm like don't do that <laughs> dude the guy's gonna kill you uh, my guess is the camera operator was like a 300 pound rugby player ready to kill the guy but geez louise i mean you hear that and you're just like oh that's so nice you took him in and, and you know and it was really cool to him and it's like cut to george harrison being you know his home him being assaulted in his own home and his wife thankfully hit him with a candlestick so hard that she bust his skull open. But yeah, these guys, I mean, obviously we know what happened with John, but uh, he was very, very nice. But yeah, to say like, yeah, I like it was like, yeah, just, you know, I just put words together at something and he's on, you know, in a mansion. Yeah. In, uh, like a British, but a re, you know, like a mansion. That's, and a state. You know, like, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> God <Gosford Lords>. <laughs> He was, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. All right. Uh, I got to play this because, uh, you know, after I am, I've slowed this process down. Oh, no, no, no. No, I love this. But you know what I love more than even your thoughts? The solo by George. Peter, play the solo. That's, that's what I love so much about this. It's just like, I, I would just pass over that solo. And and now it's just like, because this is the whole thing is that I used to be obsessed with John Lennon. He was my favorite Beatle. And now I'm a George fan. As you get older, you get spiritual. You buy some crystals. You burn some Nag Champa. You're all about, you read the Bhagavad Gita. It's all I mean, George. sure. 
We all did that. <laughs> Wait, who's your favorite Beatle? Oh, how dare you? Oh, uh, oh I dare. I'm going to go with uh, Pete Best. Uh, <laughs> Stuart Sutcliffe. <laughs> I like him a lot. Uh, George Martin, he's my favorite fifth Beatle. He's the best. I don't, yeah, it's one of those things where it's constantly rotating. And you know, this is like, I love, I love, there were like people like, oh, you like Paul, right? You're like a Paul fan. Oh, well, I'm, you know, deeper. I like John. And I'm like, oh my gosh. But uh, yeah, no, I, it's one of those things where it, it's been a moving target for a long time. And uh, George, you know, he was so quiet at compared to Paul and John that were so out there. And of course, I mean, Ringo, his name was Ringo Starr. So George was just like, yeah. And he could have had as big of a career as any solo artist from the 60s and 70s if he had wanted to and uh yeah he was uh you know like he was well he was john he was paul's friend right because they were yeah and uh before when they met when they were 15 or whatever um yeah so no i think george you know like george proved through the 70s and 80s and 90s that he could you know over and over like wrote just masterpieces. And well, so to go with what you're saying, to go with what you're saying, uh, in my opinion, out of the best Beatles solo records, it's George, all things must pass. I mean, it's a, we did that. We did that maybe a year ago with, we, with Peter Asher from the guy who used to be the head of Apple studios, my producer up in the corner, Jeremiah booked him and, uh, he hated me. Oh, he hated me. And we've gotten more complaints about that episode uh, than any other episode. Isn't that right, Jeremiah? Just give us the thumbs up if you, yep, see? Hey, it wasn't, they didn't complain about how poorly organized the bookshelf is behind you? Dude, this is fucking, this is. This it is, looks I'm like gonna... <laughs> you were, like, like we're playing with a Nerf ball right before we started. We actually, we were. Or, <laughs> or you were trying to document a crime because I can see the Polaroid camera. So you were trying to document a crime from 1981 and you were like, get it out quick. Here, you got to get photos of the car crash. Quick, quick more. Do it. But look at this. You might not like this, but look at this. Look, the Chesapeake Bay. Look at that. Wow. On the water. No, no, you definitely don't look like a ne'er-do-well. Like, yeah, my mom's place, man. Come on, get AT&T fiber. It like is super fast. Unbelievable. Anyway, let's microdose. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. That's actually, a beautiful shot. Jesse yeah. McVeigh, right? Beautiful. Also, your perfect uh, song to microdose to would be the next one, Across the Universe. Ah, so a, a masterpiece. Thank you. Thank you. A version of and this. And so they removed the bird sound, because the bird sound in the first version that came out, that was Phil Spector, right? Yes. You know, right at the beginning, the birds flapping away, and yeah. then it went. So and they were like, "Get rid of the birds! Get rid of the birds!" So a version of this was actually recorded a year earlier in February of 1968, and included on a 1969 charity album for the World Wildlife Fund. Uh, Peter, play 135. So even though this sounds all cosmic and shit, John was compelled to write it after he got irritated by the nagging of his first wife, Cynthia. According, accordingly, the chorus lyrics, Jai Guru, 
Guru Deva Om is a calming mantra that John picked up in Rishikesh, <laughs> India, when the Beatles visited the Maharishi in 68. So, and he was like, I want to get so far away from my current wife, I would go across the universe to be away from her. We've all felt that, dude. That's Wow, that takes on a totally different meaning. Yeah, dude, that's what I'm telling you, dude. John was a dick, bro. John was a dick. Like, he would, dude, I'm friends with Sean Lennon. I'm on his album with Les Claypool. Julie, dude, he, I mean, I don't get to name drop that often about Beatles that I know. So let me have this. Okay. You do. You You still don't know any Beatles, but go ahead. Burr said to me, he goes, you know, you know, when you follow your dreams, cool shit happens. And, and I'm such a huge Beatles fan to know that I've jammed with Sean. We've hung out and I'm on his record with Les Claypool. Just, it's like, it still blows my mind because I like, as we've talked, I'm obsessed with the Beatles. And, and I think that's, that's the whole thing, even with this song is that across the universe i remember when i was younger i really liked this i still that segue brought us back by the way thank you brought us right back actually well done that shows super good hosting skills thank you brother also you'll hear something really cool about this on february 4th 2008 across the universe became the first track to be beamed directly into space by nasa who transmitted it towards the north star polaris 431 light years from earth so that's pretty that's pretty boss that's amazing and what's the point you're gonna fire this song into space and be like what the hell is this guy talking about uh no, uh that's pretty cool the aliens will love she loves you man yeah have you heard rufus wainwright's version of across the universe it's great it's on uh poses 2001's poses and then um oh, there's another version uh by Give me a oh, Robin Hitchcock. There it is. Robin Hitchcock. Yeah. So Rufus Wainwright's version and Robin Hitchcock's version. I can't recommend enough. Thank you. Next song. I mean, my lyrically, it refers to humankind's eternal problems with ego trips. Uh, this is my favorite part. Peter, play it. Oh, I can hear. I mean, my. So this is what's funny about this song. So George wrote this about two weeks into the Twickenham sessions and due to a prominent scene in the movie of him showing it to the band while a disinterested John dances with Yoko, it needed to be included. Uh, So as John had already privately quit by 1970, George, Paul and Ringo recorded this with George Martin. Uh, it's also sadly fitting that I Me Mine is a song about creative division and inflated egos, two elements that played a huge role in the breakup of the band. I know it's not, if you've seen that that clip in the anthology, I think you mentioned it earlier where George was like, he's like, I'll play what you want me to play. If you want me to play this, I'll do it. And that, it's like, that's what's so sad about this song because i never realized it was that george was like accepted by so many other great musicians dylan you know and and the stones and everybody respected look at the traveling woolberries he was in a band with exactly and they respected him but he wasn't respected by basically the two most important members of this band uh and it's just 
you know, it's almost perfect that this song is about ego. Uh, tell me your thoughts on this song. No, I, I think this song shows George's insane dynamic song writing skills along with the music because that clip you played, it goes right into the, it's the, the crescendo of that chorus and then it drops down the other side and does it again. It is, it shows you what a great songwriter he is and that he can, the, the dynamicism of his music and uh, I didn't realize it was about that. There's so many Beatles songs. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. And then, you know, then John just goes, it's just a bunch of words put together. And then, you know, we just like throw a guitar on the air and we say like Beatles. And uh, you're absolutely right. It's it's like being on the the Chicago Bears with two Michael Jordans ahead of a, you know, a Scottie Pippen where you're like, that guy could lead any team he wanted to, but he's on this team with Michael Jordan. And uh, so, yeah, I think he is, it's, it, it's hard to say he's underappreciated because, you know, the guy is, it's, he is George Harrison. And, uh, but I'm that you can feel the dynamic, that exact dynamic you talk about, which is a tragedy because those two guys should have been like, cannot believe we ha- we are we are the dream team literally this is like this dream come true nobody is it's it's crazy how good that, that the four came together like some sort of harmonic convergence of creativity no for sure but maybe because of the reaction that 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 George had to deal with with them we wouldn't have gotten some of the great songs that he did have to like really force through like something or then even taking it to all things must pass i mean that record you know, the Beatles one might have never broken up if they all didn't, if they all just would have gelled a little bit better. But, but it's just, you know, I feel like in all of this, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just disorder with them and their relationship with George. I think that's, that's why the songs that we did get from George on the Beatles records are so great is because he had to like push through like his best ones. I mean, in my opinion, while my guitar gently weeps is probably arguably the best song off of the white album. So I would agree. And one of the best rock songs ever written for sure. I remember that was one of those songs where you you, I feel like you go through your wow, my guitar gently weeps phases where you discover what it's like, you know, you've heard it or like you get, you know, you hear about the beat, but then you go through these, especially in high school. I'm like, I'm just going to listen to these three songs for the next month and a half and let them completely burn into my memory cells, into my heart. And that is one of them. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station. It was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like chocolates. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Hi, this is Paul Phelps. And this is Monica Strutt. And we're from the Daily Music Business Podcast. We're joined by a number of other really great hosts in creating daily content with great advice for independent musicians just like you. That's right. We put out episodes daily on all topics from music marketing to branding, advice on signing with a manager and label and anything else you need to up-level the business side of your music career. We've got it covered. Subscribe to the Daily Music Business Podcast today on your favorite podcast catcher. Subscribe today to the Daily Music Business Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. 
Uh, have you ever seen Have you ever seen them play that at the rock and roll? Uh, I think it's the induction where where Prince plays Prince plays the solo, and it's like it's like Jeff Lynne and Prince and Donnie and Donnie Harrison. It is. It's what's one not only just made me love the song even more, but it made me appreciate how dope Prince is because he yeah he he kills it like kills. It. I was about to cuss, but I think my other niece is in the room. <laughs> I was about to be like he effing crushes. All right, next song. You wouldn't believe it. He just <laughs> friggin' it's just nailed me. it. I know. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> You're 100 right. No, I well, but I'll say that uh, I saw when I saw Prince. He sang uh, the Foo Fighters uh, a song, uh, The Best of You. And it was just, and he was playing one of his songs and you realize, oh, it's the same chords. And he, he was just like, I got a confession to make. And I was like, oh my Lord, he's singing a Foo Fighters song. And uh, it's the best. It was, I I was just like, dear God. Yeah. I mean, I, could you imagine? uh, Yeah. Anyway. All right, I'll stop. All right, great. So Dig It is just a snippet of rambling of a rambling 15-minute jam coming out of a cover of Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone with Paul on piano, John on a six-string bass, George on guitar, Ringo on drums, Billy Preston on organ, who really does tie this whole record together, and George Martin on maracas. Lennon rattles off acronyms and famous names before it trails into an edited ablid from another How take. How long is the song? Um, the song's like under a minute. I, I, here's yeah, like 50 seconds yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, So I've got here, play this part, uh, Peter, because this is the this is the part that I pulled for it. All right, so so that was Can You Dig It by Georgie Woods, and now we'd like to play Hark the Angels Came. That's just Paul, that's just John just being a being a cadoodle man he's just having fun he's on heroin that's what you do on it yeah we've all done you know we've all put on we've all done heroin and had fun and it's that other part of heroin where you're just scratching all the time and wondering why you're just having bowel movements in your bed (laughs) that's the not so fun part i mean it is weird and wonderful like because i'm sure it must have driven george martin insane when you're like no there's gonna be a song on the album yeah. and I was like this thing is 53 minutes long and people are like it's just screaming and yelling <laughs> yeah it's on the album but the, okay but okay. then but though then joel that brings us because the transition i love it i call it the transition song oh and i i don't i don't know i don't know if we appreciate let it be on the record as a whole if it isn't for that that you know mumbo jumbo right before it so here so let it be paul's mother mary died of brain cancer in 1956 when he was 14 this title from the song came to him when he saw his mother in a dream reassuringly saying to him during the stressful era of recording the white album the george martin produced single version of this was released before the album and the movie everything about this song is perfect and i couldn't decide what my favorite part was the solo in it just rips uh but my favorite is paul's little falsetto that little like in it so peter play that i wake up to the sound of music mother mary comes to me
me? Come on, Joel. <laughs> Almost. Oof. Uh, I mean, here's one of those songs where like, what, 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 what can, what can you say? I mean, you can't. It's it's perfect, and ever. I don't. I don't. I don't know. What is there any criticism? Should there? There's. I don't. No. There's nothing you can say. I was like, it should be two seconds longer. And you're like, so it's just one of the best things that's ever been written for for music yeah. ever. Yeah, it just is. I know that I uh, sound melodramatic, but top top that assholes. It's so funny, Joel, because like when I was younger, I I liked this song, but I kind of thought it was cheesy. And then I listened to it maybe two or three weeks ago as I was prepping to do this and I just started weeping. It was so beautiful. And it, it just, like we said about the Beatles, it just hits differently the older we get and the more that we've gone through struggles and the more we've overcome them. Something like this is like now, you know, especially during the pandemic where it's like, you know, we've lost work, we've lost this. And then you listen to this and it just feels okay. And that's what's so beautiful about it. Um, when you hear something like, oh, this song is about his mom and remembering his mom. And I think people will, could have gone like, oh, well, that could become melodramatic or something. And it's not just like John Lennon's Julia is not at all. It's so wonderfully honest. And, and they just happen to be insanely good songwriters who make a beautiful thing. Now, do you like the shaggy version? Of this? Shaggy the the reggaeton. I don't know if it's reggaeton. Reggaeton. Uh, well, I would say he's. This is this is not really. Good. I mean, it's a it's a mashup. It's. I don't know what the legality of this is. We play it. Honey came in and she got me red-handed, creepy with a girl next door. Picture this: we were both butt naked, banging on the bathroom floor. How could I forget that I had given her an extra key? All this time she was standing there, she never took her eyes off me. Oh, you forget the woman, that's a your villa. That's one of those tracks on my iTunes that I'm like, share. We will not let you share that. They will not. I don't know how to get it off my iTunes into like a MP3. I can't. I mean, I'm sure there's a thousand YouTube videos on how to rip something like that. But uh, I love. I listen. So they just turned up. Let it be a little. They made it a little bit faster. And that song just perfectly. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, it's fantastic. Cheese ball. Well, here's a funny thing about this song is that Lennon hated it. He hated the song. He hated the Christian overtones. So that is why he made sure that it was followed by a song about a shady prostitute who got arrested for robbing a homeward bound sailor. Peter, play the opening to Maggie May. John's a dick. That dirty no gun loving Maggie May. Dude, John's a dick, bro. That's what I'm saying. He used to be my favorite beer, yeah. but I just not anymore. But 
Don't you think it was just they were just at each other the whole time? Oh, for sure. So he was just like, I'm just going to do something opposite. I mean, Abbey Road is the greatest example of that, where they're like, oh, yeah, well, this is my side. That's your side. Do whatever you want. I'm doing this. For sure, dude. Uh, And I, however, uh, this is what's kind of cool about about Maggie May. Like Dig It, it lists all four Beatles as writers, but it's a traditional Liverpool folk song that they played in their pre Beatles skiffle group, The Quarrymen. Um, yeah, this is a little off. Well, should I ask this? Why not? Since this is about, <laughs> since this is about, I like how you're saying it like we're, we're like on a talk show where we have eight minutes to get it all in. You're like, should we talk about well, this? No. We only have no limit. Well, all right, go ahead. Usually, I ask. I usually I always ask questions like pertaining from the song meanings about and ask you the question about your life. So I want to ask you this: When have you felt like you were prostituting yourself? <laughs> I'm doing it right now. <laughs> yeah, dude. You know, there's a couple of television things that I've done. There was a, like a couple of pilots. This is years ago because people can try to, if they're trying to get, it was like things that never saw the light of day. But I'm like, I literally was like, I think I'm, I'm going to do this. My agents are recommending that I don't. And I was like, but I don't think this is going to go anywhere. So I'm just going to take the risk. And uh, I think there's a lot of, I have a lot of actor friends that are like, how dare you? And I'm like, that thing bought me a basketball hoop yeah. that I <laughs> that I I've made a cement hole for and now I have a basketball hoop. Uh so uh it bought other things. But so I think th- there wasn't a time when I'm trying to think of a time when I was just like and I could not look at myself in the mirror. There wasn't I haven't and that's not to say I mean it's probably just because I've hoard out myself so many times that I don't even <laughs> I'm like yeah that seems fine. Yeah that's fine. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't have, I'm trying to think. No, 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 but I get it because I think there's a certain point, like, especially at the beginning, it's just like, we just want to work. We just want to make an income that's not waiting tables. Like if it has to do with our, with, with what we love doing, like stand up or acting, whatever, it's like, call us prostitutes universe. All right. No, I always see it as uh, you look at it like surfing where when you paddle out, you start seeing waves and you just have to start going like, I think this is a good wave. This looks pretty good. And then you see if that, Wave takes you all the way in or it smashes you and you just swim back out and you keep doing it. And hopefully you don't hit the rocks or get eaten. I love that. Uh, I love that. That's how I, I was like, yeah, you not everything is life and death. So, uh, and that's why, yeah. So there you go. All right. I've got a feeling. All right. So once one bright, this is one of my favorites. This is one of your favorites. All right. So one bright spot uh, of this album is this last serendipitous collaboration between Paul and John. Uh, Paul had had this unfinished song and John happened to have another older unfinished song called Everybody Had a Hard Year and suggested uh, merging them. Paul's part was upbeat and positive as he went into this new project while John's was dark and reflected his previous year of divorce, estrangement from his son, Julian, Yoko's miscarriage, his drug bust and his continuing heroin addiction. Uh, Best part is Paul's scream. uh, Peter, play it. So, so why is this your favorite song? I won't 
What, what do you think? Uh, because of the things you said. Because it's the, it's the it's exactly everything you said. It's both of them. And it, there, it's like, you just go like, can you guys just put it away, your differences for a second, and just come together on a really wonderful song where you're working together and... And it's everything you said. It's a John song and it's a Paul song. And it's ironic that Paul the whole time was like, I've got a feeling, I've got a feeling that this band is going to break up. (laughs) And, uh, and then it did. So, and there really is, it is like a sweet and sour. It is, it is, it is savory and sugary at the same time. And, um, uh, it's just, I think it's a masterful song. And I, this is another one of those songs when I hear, I'm just like, I'm never turning it off. Yeah. I, I literally like what I, cause I went back and went through this album and I didn't listen to let it be. And I didn't listen to this cause I'm, and I didn't listen to get back. Cause I was just like, Oh, you've though you don't need to, you've already heard them 6,000 times and it'll be fun to get on a podcast and, and, and hear it uh, fresh. But some of the other ones I'm like, yeah, you didn't listen to Maggie May as much as you maybe thought you did. And uh, so anyway, yeah, so that's that's why I love the song. And and there's something about, for me, which I never, I was too, I wasn't alive or barely alive, which is like, there's something about the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. And this song kind of like, it's, it's, it's also signaling the end of the band, but this song kind of like, oh, this era is over. A new one is beginning. And uh and it's hopeful and it's cynical and it's it's really great. No, I completely agree with you. All right, one after 909. So this rooftop performance is the oldest Beatles song recorded for any of their official albums as it was written by John with a little help from Paul in 1957, the same year that they met. John, whose birthday was October 9th, was always drawn to the number nine. So we used it in this tale of just missing his baby's train. Uh, what I think was great about uh, Spectre's production is leaving in these little moments of dialogue. Uh, Peter, uh, play 237. That's the whole thing, is that, that all those little, like, uh, the spoken things that are played throughout this album, that was all Phil Spector trying to create the illusion of like, oh, well, this is that concert movie like uh, thing. Well, and we should point out, obviously, Billy Preston was on the keyboards on that song. Kills it. on, And he kills it. And I don't think people, he's like 16 years old or something or 18. He was so young. And he, he had played with Chuck Berry, I think. I mean, it was, the guy was... Uh, fucking master but that said about now i because i went back and listened to the other disc on let it be naked and they're just giving john shit about the lyrics they were like so um, went to the station right and you can hear them just he was like and they got the uh wrong location and he was like yeah and he was like they just you just chose that because it rhymed, didn't you (laughs) (laughs) and they just it's so funny like oh yeah so How'd you figure that one out there, John? And it's so funny to me. And he was, you could see that he was not, he was like, yeah, that's exactly what I did. It rhymed. And so funny. That's what's so great about, about those little like interludes is because it does give you that little bit of character that, that each beetle kind of has. Well, mostly it's all, it's all John, but I, but I mean, it, it just adds so much like depth that he was the funny one. Do you know what I mean? Like you can hear it and it's like, it almost like it lives up to the stereotype that everybody gave him. But having John sing Danny boy perfectly sets up the transition to the next song, 
which is the long and winding road. Paul was inspired by the road up to his farm in the calm country of Scotland, of course, and imagined it's sung by someone like Ray Charles. So this third final and last number one single was already pretty mawkish, but sparse before Phil Spector drizzled schmaltzy strings and choirs all over it. Let's take a listen to the schmaltziness of the strings. Peter, play 156. Personally, I love the strings. I mean, this is a tearjerker for me. This reminds me of my senior year in high school after the Beatles anthology came out when I really did like such a deep, deep, deep dive into the Beatles and and realized just how great they were. This song, it's just, it keeps coming back. It's, it's just, it's, you know, next to uh, two of us, this is probably my favorite song on the record. Really? Yeah. I love wow. this. I love this song. And Paul. No, I, I think Phil Spector ruined a lot of it for me because I just thought I found it very schmaltzy. I was just like, wow. Okay. And then it was like, and then he has to actually say in it that he cries. And I'm like, okay. But that, that was the same, like, like with the, the REM song, everybody hurts where I'm like, well, this is right on the nose. And, uh, <laughs> But uh, the version without all that is a better version for me. I have to listen to that. I have to listen to that because I've, I, I only, I don't think I've ever listened to Let It Be Naked because I just, I don't know. Maybe I put it on. Maybe I did, but I don't really remember. Yeah, I don't know. There's just, this, I, the song is so on the nose about what it's doing. It's kind of like, I don't know. Now I sound like if I, like, this is a par- how paranoid I am. They're like, oh, Paul McCartney's going to hear me bragging on his song and he's a gigantic like hear me they're like i can't wait to hear that was like that game show i mean those are the paranoid like this game show host was like not a hundred percent on every one of your songs uh no it's kind of like you know like when i don't know did you read the liner notes off of the police uh you know the huge the it now came out 20 years ago but where they they did liner notes uh, redid all liner notes on all their songs and no i didn't see that like Sting is constantly like, I wish T in the Sahara was slower. And then Stuart Copeland is always just like, yeah, he said that about every fucking song. And I was just like, yeah, this is one of those times maybe where. I can't I believe know, that like, they did that. That's it's insane because the police were perfect. Like, that's so crazy that you would like critique them on the new release of the record. Well, it's funny that we that we talked about this because Paul Hated this version so much. Then good. Then I'm with Paul on that because the strings get like it just gets so like oh, it sounds like a movie soundtrack for that swelling crescendo of the lovers coming together and then getting you know blown up or something. For, it's it's perfect cheese though. But this is what Paul used uh, as one of the six reasons uh, he used in court when he sued to dissolve the Beatles. Now, Phil Spector, I know that's dope. Phil Spector maintains that the dense orchestrations had to be there to cover up and check this out. Lennon's terrible bass playing. Ringo was the only Beatle at that last session when he played along with the session musicians and choir to complete Spector's signature 
wall of sound. Um, wow. Originally. Yeah. And what's funny, even funnier is this song might not have been a Beatles song. Paul originally offered this to Tom Jones in 1968 with the condition that it be his next single, but it was too hasty and Tom had to pass. Can you imagine if that would have Tom, you probably should have taken that. Yeah, right. <laughs> when a Beatle is offering you a song, just go ahead. Just take, that, it, just take the risk. Dude. He's like, nah, man. I like, gotta- they wouldn't have thrown underwear at me the way they did. <laughs> it's not unusual. It's it's a very, you're right. It's it's a very- I mean, so she said John's bass playing was terrible. That's what Phil Spector, yeah, okay. That's just a guy in a, that's just a Phil Spector being a dick. And take and like getting a lawyer, and the lawyers were like, "Yeah, say his his bass playing was bad. One of the greatest musicians of all time. Yes, great. But on heroin, you know, you ever, dude? You, uh, we've all, like we talked about. Remember the last time you did heroin? You you lay around, you, yeah. You scratch yourself. You got butter fingers. All that. Yeah. It's very tough to maintain a baseline, dude. You got to maintain. I don't know. He was able to do all that other shit on the album really well. It's true. And then all of a sudden, just one day, I was like, "Come play the bass, man." <laughs> he's like, "He's like, oh, he's like, hold on for a second. He's like, he's like, I haven't pooped in four days. That doesn't. <laughs> I like how Phil Spector's like, I had to come fix their songs. <laughs> he's such a dick. All right, for you, Blue. George Harrison wrote this 12-bar country blues song for his wife, Patty Boyd, in 1968. This is my favorite part. Peter, play 58 seconds. This is this is. Was it, when he said Johnny, was he referring to John Lennon's bass playing? I don't know. Maybe. But what I did find is this. So after recently hanging out with Bob Dylan and the band and being treated with equal respect, George optimistically approached these sessions, anticipating an ensemble approach. It didn't really work out that way. This is the only original recorded for this album until I Me Mine, featuring Lennon on lap steel guitar and McCartney on piano. This went to number one as the B-side of the long and winding road. Um, yeah, so my my writer This was the number one. Well, well, long and yeah, so yeah. long and winding. No, long and yeah, road. long and winding road, but this was the B-side. So that I mean, I guess they kind of like I don't know how the singles used to work back in the 60s, but I mean this is what's so funny about this song is that this is almost like I don't want to call it a throwaway in the Beatles catalog, but it's it's just it's not when you think of Let It Be, this is not the song that pops up in your head, but yet it's so great. And it's like and it's just like George is like fighting to get any music on these later records. Yeah. But you don't think about Maggie May either when no, you think about Let but, it be. but there's I mean, I don't, but I do because it's such a, that beginning of Maggie May is so iconic with that dirty Maggie May that it just brings up so much. This is one that you just don't really think about as much. What are your thoughts on this? No, I like, I, mean, I like, it's, I, you, like it's, it's a, it's a much easier hang than the long and winding road for me. No, I would agree that it's not the song that pops into your head. Like 
Abbey Road, you put them all together and you're like, yeah, that's let it be. And so I think some of the, you know, the, the transition songs or whatever, the, the little ones, uh, this is perfectly in line and probably the most well, uh, you know, like the most thought out and well played. And so I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, it's just a fun, easy hang. And, and, uh, I didn't know that it was dedicated to his wife. I think the guitar work is like that little, those little plinks. Not many people were doing that. And then it, you know, here we are. Great song. Then that leads us into the final track on the record, which on Let It Be Naked is the first track, Get Back. So a different mix of this McCartney song was released as a single in April of 1969 and credited to the Beatles with Billy Preston, the only artist to ever share billing with the band on a recording. It was built around a jam at Twinkenham with the line, Get back to the place you should be from the song Sour Milk Sea that was a ri- that was written and produced by George Harrison for Apple artist Jackie Lomax. It went through several lyrical rewrites, including being a protest song that parodied bigoted anti-immigrant sentiments. So this blew my mind when I found this. This version has a false ending from the rooftop concert and edited studio chatter to make it sound live. So all that talking at the end was on a totally different recording when he goes, you know, the whole famous, uh, I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves. And I hope we pass the audition. So that there's the intro uh, with him saying sweet Loretta fart. She thought she was a cleaner, but she was a frying pan. So that was after the song and an edited version from the rooftop concert. So, yeah, so they threw that all together, which is why I think I love it so much, because when you read the lyrics uh, now and then you find out that this used to be a protest song, it's it's about, you know, these anti-immigrants and like trying to like fight against all of that. It just adds such a deeper level because I just took this song as like, oh, it's it's one of those mishmash Beatles songs. Just get back. Yeah, get back. But there's there's a deeper meaning to this. Uh, thoughts on this? I didn't realize I didn't know it was a protest song. <laughs> Shows you how much I know. I kind of go like because the Billy Preston, as you said, got full credit and his keyboard work here is unbelievably Unbelievable. good. It is just like, who is this genius and uh he was 23 when they recorded it let it be by the way but no i just look at it was almost like oh well this is when the beatles go hey guys let's just come up with an insanely catchy song that's super cool and we can we can do this in our sleep you know like when they want to do something like revolution or something they're like when they come together and be like oh we're just gonna write a song that people will never get out of their heads because we're that good and here it is and it's gonna be called get back and it's a masterpiece yeah hey there i am johnny christ from avenge sevenfold and i've got a podcast called drinks with johnny you're gonna want to check out i sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life from professional wrestlers to actors comedians fighters musicians Everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Uh, you are right, though. The star of this song is Billy Preston. Peter, play a little bit of his solo. She was a 
Being that we've just gone through the record, we found out all this different information about it. Does that change any of your perspective on how this Beatles Beatle album ranks in your ranking of all the great albums that they released? No, it's. I think it's not good to say that it was thrown together after they broke up because they all had, I think it was like this moment in time where they did the work on the songs they did at this crazy time in their careers. And you can hear it on the Let It Be Naked, the extra disc where they're <laughs> screwing around with each other. And I always like learning all this stuff because it makes me appreciate the album that much more. And I learned so much more today. And, uh, uh, so it, it just makes me want to go back and listen to the whole thing again. And you forget, I think people, I mean, some people don't, but you forget like, oh, this is exactly what was going on with them at this time. And um, it makes me, yeah. So there's a special place in my heart for this album. Cause I'm, cause I see it like the moon landing where you go, oh, you were born in 71. The moon landing happened two years before you were born. They, they had already gone to the moon. So that's how I kind of feel like about the Beatles is that they had already conquered them the solar system by the time I was born. So uh, I, yeah, that's why I play Beatles music for my kids. Cause I was like, you should know this. You should get to learn this song. And I'm hoping that they'll just kind of organically uh, go over to it. But uh, so, yeah, so I really like, I did a little boning up on the album, but I didn't know all that stuff you said. Yeah. Well, we've got a few more things. So here, let's, let's do a couple facts and then we'll get you out of here. All right, everyone knows Paul hated Phil Spector's overproduction and augmentation of his songs. Years later, Spector clapped back by saying, Paul had no problem picking up the Academy Award for the Let It Be movie soundtrack, nor did he have any problem in using his my arrangement of the string and horn and choir parts when he performed it during 25 years of touring on his own. If Paul wants to get into a pissing contest about it, he's got me mixed up with someone who gives a shit spoken like a true batshit crazy person. I like his, like, if he wants to get into a pissing match, then he should talk to somebody who gives a shit because clearly Phil Spector gave a huge shit and was pissed. And then he shot someone in his foyer. So, uh, that's why he's, that's why he's in federal prison. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you're right. You know, (laughs) I like his hair, though. His hair is pretty dope. What's the longest you've ever held a grudge? Oh, grudge. You know, like I go back to, oh, I, I can go back to like getting into fights in second grade or some like a big kid like being a dick to me. And I, I can think back to those times and start getting like, oh, I'm I'm right there. My heart's beating. My adrenaline's going. I'm ready to fight again. And so, yeah, no, when people are like, I don't hold grudges, I don't, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, probably you do. It's so, I mean, as long as you work through them, but, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't have any, I have nothing like that. Uh, I don't have any longstanding, I don't think, maybe I do, uh, but I don't have, I like just to hear like Phil Spector's statement like that, where I'm just like, he was willing to, blah, 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 but, but don't confuse me with somebody who gives a shit. <laughs> Whatever, dude. You sound yeah, like right. you're the last person I want to go to dinner with. Um, <laughs> I can say all this because he's in prison. Uh, no, uh, he's in prison. I, yeah. I don't know. Do you have any grudges? 
You know, it, I was thinking about that as you said it. Like, there, I get into a lot of like shower arguments where it's like I'll be, I'll be, you know, in the shower by myself or in the car, and I just think of that moment from fourth grade where it's like I didn't stand up for myself, or even recently, if like if like a booker or whatever it is, and and I and I like have that argument again. So I've, but as I've gotten over the last like three or four years, I've been able to like process stuff a lot easier. So I'm a lot easier on myself and I'm also able to see what I did wrong. Do you know what I mean? So even though Paul's right, that, that Phil Spector did put a bunch of schmaltzy shit on this album, he, he changed it. Whereas George Martin would have done something completely different. I think Paul just needs to recognize that dude. It's like, if you really fucking hated it that much, then you shouldn't have been covering it the way they've been recorded. Well, and you're the guy on the album, so you had the power to un before it was released to do something about it. Exactly. And exactly. So I get that maybe it was like, well, I didn't know it at the time or whatever, but still it's kind of like, I don't know. He was like Phil Spector was the most literally the most like the most famous record producer on the planet at that point and had a zillion hits and his Christmas album is one of my favorite of all time and I know that sounds weird but I'm not kidding but yeah you could have done something about it and and if Phil had just gone like he seemed to like it at the time and the songs did okay and I'm sorry he disagrees and you know like if you just said something like that it would made Paul look you know less gracious and it would have made Phil look great but instead Phil looks like an asshole yeah and that is why Paul's fight to release a stripped down version without Phil Spector's contributions happened in 2003 which is what we talked about with Let It Be Naked which sold okay despite most critics considering it non-essential to the Beatles body of work. There you go. I actually agree with that because it, we, because we've said this throughout the whole podcast is that every album represents a time in the Beatles and now knowing the history of the Beatles and knowing that they were on the verge of breaking up every little mistake that Paul hates is something that I love even more because we can feel what it was like probably in that room. So in my opinion, you know, let it be naked. Yeah, it's cool. Beatles made more money. Didn't need to be made. This is, I think this album is perfect the way that it is. Um, so I wanted to ask you this, if you could deem one of your past projects, non-essential, which would it be? <laughs> Is that too much? Uh, yeah, I, was, I don't know. Everything. <laughs> I'm the luckiest person on the planet because I get to and have, thankfully, for a while. Uh, yeah, like when I started acting, I was just like, I just want to do this until somebody pulls me away and makes me get a real job. I'm going to do this until until that happens. And uh, I've gone into different versions of real jobs, but uh, but for the most part, I get to screw around and do things like this. And so is any of it essential? Uh, I mean, I guess I brought money in for my family and that is essential. Uh, but it's it more like I can't believe my good fortune that I've gotten to do all the fun stuff I've gotten to do and be paid for it and call it a career. So I'm kind of like, I am, I got to, so I'm playing with house money right now. So I, that's, that's what I'm like. I cannot believe when I hear actors complaining, it drives me out of my mind. Uh, okay, so what what was the moment? What was the moment that you really, really had to pinch yourself? Like when you were like, "Holy shit!" Like not only is this working, but I'm hanging out with Steve Largent from the Seattle Seahawks. 
Like, did you have any of those? Like, did you have any of those? Like, like we were talking about me and Sean Lennon. That was one of my holy shit. This I can't believe I'm doing this. What is your holy shit? I can't believe I'm doing this moment. Uh, that has happened numerous times in my career where I'm like, what? How did I get here? Uh, like being on Sesame Street. What? Uh, you on Sesame? Yeah. They asked me to come up on Sesame Street and I did a thing about prickly things. And it was... I was like, I can't believe I get to be on Sesame Street. The new, the guests that started coming through the soup. I mean, at one point, I mean, I was putting to, when I did a sketch with Eric Idle from Monty Python, I was like, and my friend who I already talked about, Dominic DeLeo from fifth grade, he was in the sketch with me and all we did was listen to Monty Python and watch them endlessly. And I looked past Eric Idle, look at Dominic and we we're like, how did this happen? I swear to you, when I get a call, they're like, oh, they want you to be in this. I'm like, yeah. When I got a call to be on the X-Files and I was like, what? And they were like, is this something you want to do? And I was like, fuck you for even asking. I'm driving to Vancouver now. And uh, so I got to say, I get to say that. And yeah. So you, you, dude, you, but Joel, I, I, I love you stand up. You were one of my favorite hosts of the soup, if not the, the utmost best. Well, I will. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and that was where I saw it. And I loved it, man. So you deserve everything, brother. You're, you're, you're great. Dude. You know, I really so. do. Thank you. And it's the humility <laughs> that I think people appreciate. <laughs> Such a humble guy. Well, wow. hey, you know, like that weekend that Kurt Warner was there, like, yeah. just like, just like Kurt Warner, just walking back. So here's, a, here's a Super Bowl winning quarterback and Drew Bledsoe had been there the night before. So, or was there the next night. So I was just like, what is happening? How did this all happen? And it ju- it just uh, yeah. I, if if I am struck dead today, I will regret everything. No, uh, but not until Walter Payton comes to your next show because you got to just keep getting Walter Payton. Oh, this is Joe Montana. All right. So so another fact: uh, the long and winding road is Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys' all time favorite Beatles song. He said, "When they broke up, I was heartbroken. I think they should have kept going." I also find it extremely funny, uh, Joel, to know that if you look at the the list that we're going off of, it goes Sergeant Pepper and then Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, mm-hmm. which there would be no Sergeant Pepper if it wasn't for Pet Sounds. Just a little thought. Hmm. Is that what you think? I, well, I don't know. I find it a little. I find it. I find it like I find because Sergeant Pepper is one of my favorite albums ever made. Everything about that record is perfect. And they um, said that they were inspired by Pet Sounds. They pets. So Pet Sounds came out, and then they heard it, and then they went, "We have to go further." Because right before that was Revolver. So they you could see them starting to go there with Tomorrow Never Knows and some of the editing that they were choosing to do. But but it's like Pet Sounds comes out. That was like this. I guess for the beach boys, like a psychedelic version of their music. And then the Beatles were like, we have to take it even further, which they did because it's, it's phenomenal. All right. I'm going to, I, here's what I'm going to say. I have, and I really need to, and I'm an old man now, but I I didn't get into the beach boys that much. (laughs) Me neither. No, me neither. I I just, I look and Brian Wilson, I know you are a, Titan of music of musicality and I apologize. So no, so I just didn't get into the Beach Boys the same way that I got into you know other bands and I I growing up in Seattle during all that grunge stuff, there are so many bands that credit the Beach Boys with a lot of their sound or excuse me a lot of inspiration for like and so I'm like, "Oh, I need to really get into it." But I just didn't 
I never got into that surfer sound. I don't know why that, 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 uh, I, I, it just didn't, it just didn't hit me in the same spot. And again, Beach Boys, I'm sorry. I'm not that great music, but I, I just never, I will also say, and like, I, like the Beatles are a band or or like Peter Gabriel or, uh, Led Zeppelin. I like, I, or Bruce Springsteen or something like that. I got into them, but I never got into Dylan the way that most of my friends got into Dylan. And, uh, and so, and everything I read about him, he seems like the fucking coolest. And I will, I have bought his albums. I own them and, um, all that's all that stuff, but I just didn't, I still listen to it, but I didn't, it didn't have the same religious, uh, yeah, it's sort of, I would say Peter Gabriel and David Bowie filled up that hole in my heart. And so, uh, that, yeah, so there you go. That if we're talking about, if we're talking about our sixties and seventies, British, uh, and American, uh, bands that, uh, yep. There you go. I'm the same way, Joel. I'm the same way. I never really got into Dylan, the beach boys. I'm going to be killed for this. Uh, there's a dude, there's a lot of people that are like us that just always, dude, I remember I went to go see the rack and tours at, uh, at uh, George Mason university. They were opening for Bob Dylan. And I remember we, there was this huge traffic jam. So we jumped out of the cab that we took to get there. And we walked with this group of like of Bob Dylan fans. And there was a guy there that was like, I've seen Bob Dylan 50 times. And he might've been, he might've been 25 years old. And I was like, it's like that. Like Dylan's got that grateful dead type following. And he's like, yeah, man. And he's like, I'm meeting with a group of other people that have like, that have seen him even more than that. It's just for people like us, especially you, because you grew up in Seattle, you, you experienced the grunge, you know, grunge era and you were probably going through it. You're 49. So you were in your like early twenties. Yeah. I mean, in 91 was when all that was hitting and I was just getting out of high school. So it was, I have seen Allison Chains boot off stage. So uh, the Young Fresh Fellows would get on ahead of them. <laughs> the Young Fresh <laughs> Fellows was the biggest band in Seattle. And then all of a sudden things changed. And I remember Lane Staley screaming. He was like, this is fucking great music. You have no idea. And I'm like, they were like, get the fuck. And now I love Allison Chains. But, uh, how does, how did I got it? Is the Young Fresh Fellows like, are they on Spotify? Because I want They're all to over hear. it. Yeah. No, they basically half the band joined R.E.M., became rem's touring band but i have multiple t-shirts like the lineups of bands that were performing the young fresh fellows were always the headliner uh they i remember the posies opening for them uh the posies they bought a uh they bought or excuse me ringo Starr bought a posy song and he folded into his repertoire but uh, obviously then pearl jam soundgarden nirvana all of them came in and, you know, uh, the rest is history. And what is it? So do you have any, do you have it? What was like the best uh, grunge concert that you saw while you were in Seattle? Like, which is there one that you were like, I saw Nirvana with fucking with, with Mo- mother love bone and this band. Like, did you have any of that? Cause I, cause I like, I'm, you know, I was like, I was 14, 15 when the, when grunge really, really blew up. And that's like music that has influenced me beyond influenced. It's like, I still wear flannels. Like I still wear doc Martens. Like I, I love that area. So was, did, did you have like a perfect grunge moment? I know it's off topic, but I would just love to know. Uh, I saw Pearl jam the week they were on the cover of time in at the key arena in Seattle. 
and Versus had just come out. And I remember Eddie Vedder getting on stage going, hey, we're the most popular band in the world. And then they went right into the beginning of the album. I was like, yeah. And then I saw Nirvana. I saw their last show in Seattle. And that was pretty great. It was just, you realize, it's one of those things where, you know, if you go see the Rolling Stones or U2 or these bands that have been around, you're like, I expect, you're like, I expect to recognize every song. And, uh, and with Nirvana, it was like, they're, they're three albums in and they're, they've only, they haven't been around too long. And everything, every, it was just, it was good. <laughs> dude, that's so, no, but that's so boss, dude. That's great. I, I love it. I love it. God, I wish I could have fucking been there. All right. Last fact, the original idea for the album cover when it was still to be called Get Back was an updated photo of them posed in the same way, looking down from the stairwell of the AMI building. That is the cover of their 1963 debut. Please, please me. In the first, they are fresh faced and in matching suits. And in the second, they had long hair, facial hair, and their individual styles. Just, I had no idea about this. Both photos ended up respectively on the greatest hits compilations known as the Red and the Blue albums. I had no idea. I did know that there were those two contrasting pictures, but I, that, I think that's so cool. I love the album cover for Let It Be. I love the, them all looking, you know, you know, they're all separate, but there's just, that's like, that's my favorite version of John. Do you know what I mean? His hair's long. He doesn't have facial hair, but he's got the little like circle glasses that he wore. Um, it's just fantastic, man. So I, I, liked, to ask uh, you. I always like that shot. I mean, I, I love the album cover too, but I always like that shot of the four of them and they all look pretty sullen. Uh, and they're fr against a huge wooden door. I think they used it for, maybe hey jude the, the the weird album that they kind of put together for america and they were like uh, because hey jude, uh i always like that shot because it really showed like another photo shoot okay and uh they could just tell how over it they were uh i just love how george was like oh i'm not touring that is definitely not happening and john's like uh i mean uh, paul's like well we could tour but if they don't want to that's fine but you know it'd be fine I'd, i would do it and then cut to him doing band on the run and just running to every live show he could do. <laughs> dude, he kills it, dude. I saw him. I mean, fuck, it might've been almost 20 years ago at this point. No, it was 2005. So 15 years ago, I think he did a three and a half hour concert and he's like probably early seventies, late sixties at that point. Yeah. I mean, the guy, and he's phenomenal. So talking about talking about styles, I wanted to ask you, what is your most embarrassing fashion moment or hairstyle? Oh, you're looking at it. Um, oh, there's some there's some hairstyles on community where I was like, oh, hopefully people can get past that. Uh, I was very creative. Uh, if you look, boy, I'm trying to think of like a I, because I was not, you know, like like these. There's a number of a list, like a lot of a list celebrities they really fell on their face with some fashion choices. Uh, I never had that problem because I was never like the star of a, of like a big movie. Uh, so I didn't have to, I, I, I didn't have to, I didn't take that risk. Uh, but there was some of my hair choices, which were my doing were pretty, like I had bangs in community and that was probably not a good choice. You, do, you did, you did frosted tips, didn't you? No, I've never done like that. 
You've never done Paris Hilton? Uh, but Seacrest has a beautiful mane of hair. I'm a balding man, so. Dude, you have great hair. Oh, now I do. It's much better than it used to be. Dude, what do you, what do, you do to stop it? Because I'm, I'm taking the finasteride and I'm you're doing the drops. Propecia? Propecia, yeah. Yeah, you're just going to have to get a transplant, my friend. It's not that bad yet. It's getting there, though, but it's not horrible yet. You know but, what? Just you know. get another tattoo that says I'm getting it. <laughs> it's just of my hair. All just right. tattoo I, up here. Just tattoo right there. Just get a tattoo of it. It's great. Dude, I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on, brother. So is, is there anything that you want to promote? I'd like to talk about um, – hmm. Let's talk about Meet the Beatles right now. No, uh, <laughs> we can no I mean, watch, watch Card Sharks. Look out for a movie that I'm in called Happily. You're going to like it. It's good times uh, with the incredible Carrie Bechet. Nice. Nice. Uh, Joel, this was fantastic, buddy. Thank you. No, bro. you were fantastic. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Joel McHale. Follow Joel on all social media at Joel McHale and go to his website for all things Joel at JoelMcHale.com. Now, for new music this week, Maddie Pinfield picked Bleachers, the alt-rock indie pop project from mega producer Jack Ananoff. And you're listening to their new song, 45. Jack has spoken of his Beatles influences many times and actually covered Dear Prudence under the Bleacher's name back in 2015. You can find all the links to that cover as well as all the new music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and you were directly influenced by one of these albums and artists and you want your music played at the end of the 500, send us your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is Jackson Brown week as we go deep into his 1977 album, The Pretender. Ooh, wait till you hear the backstory on this one. It's a fucking, it's a slam sandwich. If you haven't heard this album yet, you got homework to do. Listen to the record. Stay fleecy. A doogle doogle.
What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Next Chapter Podcasts.